Thursday, and welcome to the latest edition of Bold Leaders and Learning. I'm really excited to have one of my longtime friends and former colleagues, Stephanie Markin, who is the Executive Director of Education at Gallup. She and I had the chance to work together for seven years on a number of studies in the education space, and, uh, and although we haven't been able to work together directly over the last two years that I've been at Kaplan, uh, I have continued to follow a lot of the insights that Stephanie and the team at Gallup have been uh, cranking out. And so today, we're going to go through a whirlwind of some of Gallup's greatest and most recent findings that relate to students and teachers and parents. Uh, so Stephanie, first of all, thank you for carving out the time to, uh, to join me and gave me an excuse to catch up with you. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been keeping in close contact via LinkedIn with Brandon and all of your great sessions. So I'm honored to be a part of that. It's been fun to watch and listen to what everybody else has said. Well, it'd be great if you don't mind, uh, give people a little bit of your background personally, right? How did you get to this role in your, uh, you know, your career? And then uh, also just tell us a little bit about Gallup. I know a lot of people know the name, obviously, but uh, tell us specifically about the kind of education work that you're doing at Gallup, and then we'll just dive into some of the uh, the recent findings from there. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. So um, Stephanie Markin, I'm Executive Director of Education Research at Gallup, as Brandon mentioned. Um, I've been at Gallup since 2012. I started actually as our chief methodologist. And when I came to Gallup, I actually had a deep um, project history with the Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Education, working at another social science research firm called Westat. When it came to Gallup, Brandon and I actually just joined the organization as well, and we quickly teamed up and started working on some really interesting research that remains, I think, relevant to our discussion today around the Gallup Alumni Survey, formerly the Gallup Purdue Index. Um, but over the course of the last eight years, I've had the privilege of working with our education team around a lot of different topics and issues. Um, we have studies around faculty and staff engagement and the employee experience within higher education, studies around student experience and the extent to which that predicts really positive and, and really long-term outcomes that everybody's aiming at right now, um, the extent to which those experiences help on issues of retention, um, and also the extent to which those experiences predict graduates' likelihood to recommend their university, which is obviously incredibly important to the lifeblood of many of these institutions that we're talking about today. So our group within Gallup is really focused on anything and everything that impacts the extent to which students experience really positive long-term outcomes from their college experience. And some of that relates to faculty and staff and that culture. And oftentimes we're talking about the experiences students have while enrolled. Yeah, and so I know one of the, uh, one of the really important topics that's happening, not just within higher education, but across the entire country has to do with uh, important issues of diversity, inclusivity, equity. I know Gallup had some really recent findings from the, the latest version of the Gallup alumni survey that, that really talked about how recent alumni are feeling about diversity and inclusivity in terms of their experiences on campus. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you guys are learning there? Yeah, so I think this is really an evergreen issue that a lot of institutions have taken their eye off of a little bit, especially in the spring when institutions were focused so much on getting curriculum online. I think they've put towards the back burner to some extent concerns that students have on college campuses nationally around social justice and inclusion. And then it became obviously a topic of great discussion in the spring shortly after the pandemic started. And I think it's a good reminder for institutions, this remains one of the most pressing issues for students across the country, for all students, regardless of their race or ethnicity. And one of my favorite findings from the Gallup alumni survey years ago was that 
students who reported that they were exposed to diversity and individuals from different backgrounds were actually more likely to believe that their degree is worth the cost. And that's a really evergreen finding, I think really important to remember that inclusion isn't just important for those who need to feel included, it's also important for all students to learn and benefit from their college experience. And then most recently in the year five of the Gallup Alumni Survey, formerly the Gallup Purdue Index, we did a deep dive around the experiences students had while enrolled around inclusion. So we asked students some evergreen questions around the extent to which professors cared about them as a person. Then we looked at those things by race and ethnicity. And that question, you know, feeling cared for as a person within your institutional undergraduate experience, the differences by race and ethnicity are really startling. So about a third of graduates nationally who are Black or African-American strongly agree that they're, you know, they were cared for as a person while enrolled. As much as 10 to 15 percentage points more of white students say the same. So there are tremendous differences there. And then on other issues, you know, feeling safe while you were on campus, we also asked um, students the extent to which they felt like they were treated with respect by faculty, staff, and other students on campus. All of those populations, there were tremendous differences, especially among Black and African American students. So Black and African American students were essentially 20 percentage points less likely than white students to report that they felt they were treated by, with respect from faculty members specifically. So I think we talk a lot about respect by peer to peer, right? So student to student. And absolutely Black and African-American students were less likely to believe they were treated with respect by other students. They were also less likely to report they were treated with respect by faculty and staff members. And I think that was particularly troubling for higher education leaders who feel like they're demonstrating care and respect in their classrooms. And that's just not the lived experiences for students. And Hispanic students and graduates said the exact same thing. A little bit to a more positive extent, they were still off from white graduates but they were still very unlikely as compared with other students to report that they were treated with respect. So I think a lot to be done in the fall and moving forward on this issue of inclusion. And, you know, I think this is what students are looking for in an educational experience. Like we talk about education as being the holistic experience. They're looking for an inclusive experience. They're looking to be exposed to people from different backgrounds. And that's not going to happen if those schools aren't a welcoming place for all students. So I think that this is important and will only become more important this upcoming academic year. Yeah, those are those are really big differences between black graduates, white graduates, obviously, as you noted, Hispanic graduates too, much lower than white graduates. And I mean, on, on one hand, gosh, you know, I, I wish I could say it's surprising to to you know see such a substantial difference. I say that because higher education, as you noted, has has been a place that has arguably disproportionately believed in the value of diversity and inclusivity. But as, as we've seen in the data, as you've shown in the data, there's some real gaps in that, even among higher education institutions who, who arguably value this a lot. And the other thing you noted was it's not just about student-to-student -student interactions, right? And we're talking about a culture of inclusivity. It involves the faculty and staff and the leadership messages that come from the senior leaders. So uh, one of the other things you and I were talking about was... Um, was was the culture for staff and faculty on campuses, right? And you know they're uh, they're they're on on the low end of the engagement scale relative to other organizations. T tell us a little bit about that from a faculty and staff perspective too. Yeah, well, I'll say I talked to a senior leader at an institution the other day, and she said I could close my eyes and I could be at any institution. I experienced the exact same thing. So I also think we have to remind ourselves this is not just, just an issue that private not-for-profit or private for-profit or public colleges are dealing with. 
it's very equivalent across types of institutions in terms of inclusion and issues around respect. So I think that was a really important insight that she shared with me after 20 plus years of working within higher education. And she also said, nothing's really changed on this issue. You know, I could tell you the same exact story that happened 15 years ago as I could last week. So I think that's a little startling and that's slightly disturbing. But yeah, we hear the same exact thing from faculty and staff who report that their institutions are not an inclusive workplace. And that's at a time where higher, engage, higher ed experiences really low levels of employee engagement already. So, you know, at Gallup, we've been measuring employee engagement for 30 plus years. And we do so through a proprietary measurement called the Gallup Q12. And the questionnaire essentially asks 12 questions that measure the extent to which individuals have important experiences that they have to have within their workplace to be emotionally connected and committed to their workplace. And obviously to stay at their institution, which of course is an important goal for any institution that wants to retain talent. So the Q12 measures the extent to which people feel like they have the materials and equipment they need to do their job right, that they have opportunities at work to learn and grow, they have a best friend at work, important individual aspects of various experiences that they have within the workday. And what we've seen historically is that higher ed employees, both faculty and staff, round out the bottom quartile of our database of all industries in which we track. Meaning they're in the top, they're in the bottom 25% of all organizations in terms of the extent to which their employees are engaged and committed and connected to their work. Now, obviously everyone's entitled to an incredibly engaging workplace experience. That's I think a common understanding, especially among corporate culture. But it's also important because the extent to which faculty and staff are engaged makes a huge impact on student engagement and persistence and retention. We've done really neat analysis over the years that shows a really direct correlation between faculty engagement and the likelihood a student would recommend their university, but also stay at their university. So faculty are really like the front line on that issue of retention that we talk about so much in higher education. So it's important that they feel invested in because if they don't feel invested in, how can we expect them to invest in their students? So we're always talking to institutions about it's important you demonstrate that investment by asking them about their experiences within the workplace. And unfortunately, those are pretty negative overall. I was talking to a leader at an institution the other day. They were talking about the challenges they're experiencing coming back in the fall. And they said, we're losing some of our best people and we're not losing them to other schools. We're losing them to other industries. They're just leaving higher education wow. in general. And I thought that that was really startling because we know that times of disruption or change in any industry and in any corporate culture result in a tremendous change in talent, right? That's when we lose our best people because your moderate and low performers, they don't really leave during times of change and disruption. They kind of hold on tight to the curtains. It's the people who don't want to leave, the highly talented people for which there's always a market for, right? In the case of a highly talented employee, there will always be an organization that's looking for that individual. And I think what we're going to see is after this really challenging fall semester, there's going to be a little bit of a brain drain at institutions nationally because some of those highly talented faculty and staff members are going to say, you're asking me to do too much. This is not what I was hired to do. And I think they're going to leave. And so that worries me a little bit. You know, I talked to a faculty member the other day who said, like, this is not what I signed up for. You know, I signed up to be in person with students. I'm not in person with students. It's impossible to connect with them. The technology doesn't support me in doing so. And this is just not how I, this is not what I get paid to do. This is not what I am paid to do. And I have no doubt that that person will not be a faculty member in the spring of 2021. And I think they're a highly talented one. So I worry a little bit about how can schools better support a faculty member like that? Like what is the technology that can be provided to that individual so they stay and they can connect to students? But I also worry a little bit about higher education as an industry in this regard, because 
they don't tend to invest heavily in employee engagement programs, right? They invest really heavily in the student experience, but they sometimes forget that the two are so related that you can't expect employees to show up if you're not really investing in them. So I think that'll be really important this academic year in particular. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's a huge miss for, for organizations that are fundamentally at their heart, human capital organizations, and, and focused on, you know, powerful, strong social impact mission, which is about people, right? Uplifting people, changing their trajectory in life. And so, you know, you think about the, the lack of like real attention to that from a, you know, staff and faculty engagement point, which, as you noted, is a driver of, of student engagement, the top driver of student engagement. And then back to some of the DNI points, I recall some of the research that I wrote about uh, during my time in Gallup. One of the for, for for the staff and faculty who feel like they're part of an inclusive community, one of the top drivers of that was the degree to which they felt their opinions mattered mm -hmm. at their school. And I was always just taken aback by the in, in some ways the simplicity of that finding that you know the top driver, you know, you say, well, how how you know, if I'm a university leader listening to this conversation, I'm probably going, okay, great. What can I do to improve that, right? How do I work on inclusivity? How do I improve engagement? And, you know, you start with something as as straightforward as making sure people's opinions matter, right? That they're heard, that they're, you know, that they're uh, given some feedback uh, as a result of the opinions they've shared around that. And it gets down to a manager or dean level, right? To what degree does your manager that you report to or the dean that you work with Take the time to ask you for input, right? Or gather input or give yeah. you feedback on the input you've given. So, you know, well, this is work that doesn't require money, right? Like yeah. this is time and effort. It's not money to fix it. It's interesting you say that because I have a lot of institutions that we worked with um, in the employee engagement space and they'll say things like, is now the right time to survey? And I'm like, yes, this is the right time to survey. And I say that anecdotally as an employee who has a lot of views and challenges that they're experiencing because of COVID who wants an outlet to do so. But I also say that, having seen response rates increase tremendously during COVID-19. So this is a little counterintuitive to what I think people assume, which is that employees don't wanna be bothered by a survey. They're actually responding at a higher rate because they're really desperate for a venue and a channel in which to share some of their feedback. I was looking at open ends from a survey recently and it, they were amazingly precise in the simplistic needs that employees had. I mean, I've never seen such focused requests or demands from employers too. So I think this time being at home and experiencing the day-to-day -day challenges of a work from home environment has made them very precise about the things they need to be successful. So it's also a great time to ask the question because you're gonna get really precise recommendations and they've really thought a lot about it in part because that's all they think about because that's all they're doing and they're staying home all day. So materials and equipment seems really simple, but you know we have open ends where people are saying, I don't have a printer or I don't have a laptop, right. I have a desktop at home and I need a laptop because I have to move rooms constantly to share my space with my children who are working from home and learning from home and my significant other yeah. who's the same. It's pretty simple, right? A laptop is something that you could switch out with that desktop computer, but you have to ask to know. So it's not the time to stop asking. This is kind of the time to start asking those questions. And I actually think for some people who've never invested in employee engagement, this is a great time to jump into that space because Employees are really like looking for signals as to what you value right now. All employees really are, regardless of their industry. And saying that we value hearing from you and how we can make your work better and more effective is, is a pretty important statement right now. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think it's just great advice for anybody in higher ed right now to be thinking carefully about how they can play a role in being more thoughtful and intentional around engagement, you know, workplace culture. There's so many different aspects of it, but there's some fundamentals that, that you know, you can focus on that, that essentially move the metrics on all different levels, right? You know, focusing on somebody's opinions mattering is a contribution towards making them feel like they're part of a more inclusive community, right? So, um, so I wanted to segue because I know uh, you guys have done some recent work on K-12, right? Uh, I think a study you did with New School Ventures Fund, um, use of technology among students and teachers and parents. And so I wanted to hear a little bit about that. And I think you also did some uh, fresh surveying on parents' attitudes and ratings about school, which has been something Gal's been tracking for uh, for decades. So tell us a little about what's going on in the K-12 front. Yeah, so we just wrapped up a study with New Schools Venture Fund. They had actually conducted a study over a year ago in 2019 measuring teachers, parents, students, and administrators' attitudes towards their actual experiencing using education technology. And at that time, what we found were teachers were incredibly positive about education technology. Um, they saw it as a really important tool. They actually wanted to do more of it, and they wanted more of it, which was, I think, kind of expected, right, that that is the movement within schools nationally. And then when we went to survey again in the spring and the summer, we said, we're going to get a little bit of a different response, right? We assumed in many cases that teachers would be really negative about education technology because they had had such a difficult transition in the spring, no fault of anyone's but the pandemics. And what we were, I think, a little bit surprised by was just how much teachers still reported relying upon and appreciating education technology and what it could do for them. We did have some, I would say, reductions in just the overall positivity that we we captured in 2019. But overall, teachers were incredibly positive about what education technology could do. I think what was really interesting to me was that they actually reported getting more support in the implementation of education technology in the spring when they did get forced to do remote teaching and learning from education technology providers than they did from their own districts. So teachers were really positive about ed tech providers and companies and they said wow. a lot of support from them, but they were a lot less positive about the support they got from their district, which was really interesting because, you know, teachers are incredibly adaptable. They have to every day. They adapt per student. They also adapt for many <laughs> other reasons that are outside of their control, yeah. learning assessments and state requirements, et cetera. They're pretty patient and forgiving group. But, you know, they are, they do have some basic needs around support around these education technology tools, and they're not really getting them. In fact, what they report more often is happening is that they're going to other teachers to get them. So teachers are using other teachers as resources for how to implement education technology, which is great because they have firsthand knowledge about how to do so, but they need more support than that from the district. And they also need the district to really step up, I think, and provide support at the same rate or in a complementary way to what they're receiving from companies and providers. I actually think that the spring responses that we received, so that we collected in the summer, but about their spring experience were pretty kind. Um, I think teachers were <laughs> graceful. <laughs> and I think there's a little bit of a honeymoon around everything that happened in the spring. I think parents understood that teachers were just doing the best they could. I think teachers understood the district was just doing the best they could. I think that honeymoon will end in the fall. And my sense is that teachers are gonna say, okay, you had one week to figure it out in the spring, but now you've had three months and I need more. Right. You had the entire summer to figure this out. 
I need more. So, and I think that's a fair demand, right? We know from our engagement work that in order to be engaged in your work, you have to feel like you have the materials and equipment you need to do your work, right? And I think teachers are feeling like that one piece of equipment that is literally the only piece of equipment they kind of have right now, which is technology, has to be working in order to reach students. So I, I think more to come. I think the fall is going to teach us a lot, especially for students who were in person are now going remote. You know, we saw a lot of districts who intended to be in person, always planned to be in person and didn't have a great backup plan. And now they're having to implement one. I worry a little bit yep. about schools. because, And I, I think the same thing for higher education. You know, there are some schools that always plan to be in person and now they're having to go remote and they lost a lot of important planning time. So I think it'll be a learning experience, but I think teachers are going to be a little less forgiving in the fall. And I think the teacher shortage we've been experiencing is probably going to be far worse going into the spring and even the next academic year because of it. Yeah, you wonder, just like higher ed, uh, you're starting to see people leave higher ed entirely, right? Like how many people are just going to leave teaching entirely, right? Like that's been a concern for a long time because of the age demographic of teachers, you know, many getting close to retirement ages. And so, you know, like a teacher shortage is now a very real concern. I mean, and we saw it coming from a demographic perspective, but now you've got these other factors that very well may accelerate it. Yeah, and I mean, the pods are really fascinating to me, right? So these examples of highly talented teachers being recruited by individual parents or groups of family members yeah. saying, come teach my kid, you only have to teach my kid. And oh, by the way, I'll pay you under the table or on the side and I'll give you benefits. I mean, I think that is another round of brain drain that will occur in the education field with teachers leaving districts that are under-resourced. And, you know, it's a challenging job in the best district, in the best case scenario. But if you're offered a situation where you can teach two students from home for the year, you know, maybe that's a really attractive offer to a teacher who has thought about actually leaving the teaching field anyways. So I, I do think the pods yeah. are an interesting dynamic as well. Yeah, it was interesting. I, you know, going back to that uh, comment you made about how teachers actually said they got more support from uh, various ed tech companies than they did their own school district. Like, you know, 10 years ago, I think that would have been impossible to believe because the ed tech industry, I think, was largely criticized for not focusing on teachers. You know, they were putting out, you know, software or new apps, right, and just assuming that they would take off. And a lot of them started to realize that if they didn't provide robust teacher support, teacher training, right, implementation tools, that's really where this is uh, is starting to, you know, build in terms of success is, is the I'll call it the behind the scenes work, right? It's not the the sexy layer of, hey, we've got this new awesome software tool or whatever it might be. Um, so it, it's just interesting to see that play out in the spring where teachers were rating that support higher than their districts. And uh, we'll see where it shakes out over time. I think you're right. There's probably going to be a honeymoon effect for all of us. There was some forgiveness about the spring, you know, maybe a little forgiveness now as we head into the fall. But pretty soon folks are going to go, you know what, this isn't good. Or, you know, it, it could be better. Or they're going to be frustrated with you know, just simply how people have handled decisions, right? Open, not open, you know, trying to do too much. And so what's the what's the current state of uh, of feelings among Americans about K-12 schools? Yeah, so last year we actually detected a record high in attitudes towards the quality of education that individual parents reported their children had experienced in K-12 districts. So it was at 82%, and that was a record high for us in the 20 plus years we've measured that. 
Um, and then this year we've seen a, a slight decline. Now I will say that it's returned to the original kind of normal baseline, which is around 70%. So in our most recent survey, just a few weeks ago, we found 71% of parents rated the quality of education that their child was receiving as, as very good. So that is, I think, encouraging and that it's on par with what we've seen historically. If I had to guess and anticipate, I think it'll go down again next time we ask those questions of parents, because how could it not? Again, there was a bit of a honeymoon period even at the beginning of this academic year, which is when we caught many of those parents. So I imagine six months from now, they'll feel a little bit differently. I will say appreciation for teachers has gone up tremendously. Everybody's always kind of appreciated the profession, but when they had to do it themselves for their own kids, I think they really appreciate yeah. it. So yeah, attitudes towards teachers has gone up. I hope that is a more enduring trend of all the trends that we track because it is an incredibly difficult job. But now that people have had to do it themselves, you know, experiencing is actually believing. So I think they're yeah. on how difficult it is, which I'm sure you've experienced firsthand with your kids, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, they're, uh, they're in the other rooms of the, of the house right now doing their, you know, virtual school. And uh, so we're, you know, we're, and, and, you know, it's interesting because it's gone, it's gone a couple ways. Like certainly in my own example, it's increased my appreciation for teachers and teaching because you realize how hard it is. The other thing it's done though, which is interesting is that we as parents, uh, my wife and I have become much more involved and astute observers of what's actually being taught and how it's being taught. And, you know, some of it doesn't blow me away. Right. And I'm thinking about more of like the content, the topical content, like what are the actual activities they're doing? And so, but, but I, I think what it's done uh, is it's thrust people into a more um, nuanced kind of critique of it in positive and negative ways. And I wonder to what degree, like this is true of higher ed as well. You know, hey, if I can't be there in person, maybe I don't want to do it at all. Or if I have to be online, I want a discount because a lot of the value I wanted was from some of the other things like the residential life. And so my question for you is, do you think we're going to enter in a new era of education consumers, right, current and prospective students just being much more astute judges of the various value elements, right, where they're going to say, you know, this I value, this I don't, right, and they're going to start to evaluate the choices they're making in different ways. What do, what do you what do you foresee happening? Yeah, I mean, God, I hope so, right? I almost hope we don't return to normal. You know, everybody talks about going back to quote normal as if it's a really positive thing, but normal's left a lot of students out for a really long time. And I think we have to be honest yeah. about it. I mean, we still lack diversity in our school systems and higher ed institutions. So it's not to say normal was so perfect. It's just, we're a little nostalgic about it because we're sick of being trapped inside of our homes. But I, you know, I was reading something the other day that was like, gosh, I hope we don't return to normal. I hope we learn some lessons along the way. I was talking to a professor at Georgetown who was saying that she felt like she had students who were really shy and reserved in classrooms that she saw engaging with her more directly now that she was using technology to reach and teach them. She said, you know, I see participation and engagement from them in ways that I never saw when they were in my classroom. So there might be some pros and advantages to the, you know, the use and enablement of technology that I think we have to bring back to our new normal and really um, embrace. So I, I do think you know we'll learn a lot from this experience about how to reach new types of students as well and how to reach them differently, which is slightly encouraging to me. Um, I think schools have to be realistic that this is probably not our last pandemic. I hate to say it out loud, but I think it's true. I mean, this is not the last time people will be forced to learn from home. It's not the last time we'll have to connect with our coworkers from home. 
So, you know, institutions who've traditionally not embraced telework or work from home strategies for their employees, I hope that this teaches them you can do that effectively. And I also hope for institutions who've never embraced online learning, they take some best practices from this experience because there are students who will just never be able to be in person um, or won't be able to be in person at least for the next year, year and a half either because they have their own health conditions that prevent them from doing so or they live with a family member who does. We don't want to lose those students. Yep. So I'm a little encouraged by schools that have never done this before having to do it. Having said that, I think it's going to be a really painful learning curve for some. You know, we often talk about WGU as being such a best in class example of online learning and its delivery. You know, they have some of the best results we've ever seen in belief that your degree is worth the cost, but they've spent a lot of time and effort practicing and experimenting and rolling out new approaches to reaching and teaching students. I mean, they've had 20 years of it. So I think, you know, it's not going to happen overnight and it's, but it's more complicated than just rolling out Zoom. You know, we see this in studies with WGU, we see in studies with 2U where we're interviewing graduates from 2U powered programs and they say, you know, this is such a high quality experience. Well, that's because it was professionally designed online instruction. It was not simply moving a traditionally in-person experience onto Zoom and pretending that that's high quality instruction because it's not. So, you know, I, right. I confuse what's happened this spring, especially maybe this fall, but definitely not in the spring with what online learning can be, which is an incredibly engaging and valuable experience. Yeah, that's one of the things I, I posted about this on LinkedIn a few weeks ago. And I, and I said, you know, don't confuse the, you know, the critique of hastily assembled, you know, Zoom, you know, internet distance, you know, distance learning, let's call it right, versus professionally developed and curated online education. You know, there's really, really significant differences. And it plays out in all kinds of data. Uh, you know, recent uh, findings from the Strata Education Network consumer survey showed that graduates from entirely online institutions actually give higher ratings than graduates from other institutions on things like feeling their degree was worth the cost, right? Uh, that they'd recommend their educational path to others. So, you, you know, they, and, and, you know, we see it in our examples. Uh, this was a pre-COVID example, but Kaplan test prep, our live online test prep programs have higher NPS scores than our traditional classroom-based test prep, which is you know, been the industry standard for 75 plus years, right? And so you go, well, wait a minute, what's going on there? And to your point, when you start to dissect what's happening in some of these top examples, right? You mentioned WGU, their mentor program is deeply personal and relational, right? They're connecting with students on a weekly basis in some form. That's incredibly personal in terms of how that plays out. And sure, it's an online you know, uh, educational experience, but it doesn't mean that it can't be deeply relational. Like our example of live online test prep, we've got our best test prep instructors in front of more students. And then the students who have questions, they can go into side chats with a TA where they get their question answered individually, which no classroom teacher can do for all of the 20 or 30 or however many students are in the class. So, you know, it's not, it's not the same but in some respects, there's advantages. And I do think over time, uh, there will start to be a lot more recognition of that. But I, you know, I, I really feel like we've, you know, there's a lot of negativity about, oh, this, you know, distance education doesn't work. Well, you know, not so fast. Yeah, and we're gonna have to make it work. I mean, even if it, it is broken some places, we've got to fix it. You know, the solution is not to just assume in-person is the only way, pandemic or not. Right, yeah, exactly. 
So um, I know we're at the time. I mean, we could uh, we could keep going for a while, but uh, but I want to say thank you. I'll certainly make sure that I get you back on the show uh, next year and catch up on some of the new findings. For those of you who are planning to join us next week, I've got Dr. Mona Morshed, who is at McKinsey and has been leading their incredible generation work, which is helping unemployed youth find jobs through very fast skill and training programs. So definitely feel free to check us out next Thursday. Uh, and Stephanie, thank you again for uh, being part of today's show. It was great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me.